David, are you an atheist? Yes. When did you become an atheist? Uh, around age 12. Believing in God makes no sense. It, it's, to, to me, it's the dumbest thing. It's, it's, it's for people that can't accept the fact that they're going to die and rot in the ground like I'm going to do, and, the, and it gives them some relief from, from that thought because it's not the nicest thought in the world. Are you an atheist? Yes. Yes, I am. Yes. Yes. Yes, sir. Are you an atheist? I am. Yeah, I'm an atheist. Uh, yes, I am. Alex, do you believe in God's existence? No, I do not. How long have you been an atheist? I would say probably since I was about 15 years old. So you don't believe in the existence of God? No, not really. What happened when you were 15? Um, I started questioning things and I really just started to think about the logic behind everything. For the most part, we are not shown the evidence for there being a higher power. If we were, I almost guarantee that almost every atheist would immediately agree to there being a higher power. Are you atheists? Yes. Yes. Why? Um, well, I just haven't seen enough uh, evidence, I suppose. I grew up in a Christian family, and just over the few years d during high school and as I grew up, I just realized that there wasn't a lot of evidence to support that belief system. Are you open to evidence? Um, I, I think I am open to evidence. It just would have to be extraordinarily compelling, like out of this world compelling. If you could be given evidence, reasonable evidence, would it? Would you listen to it? Yeah, I would. You're someone who has no faith or no belief in a higher power or a creator, but if you were shown evidence, you would change your mind because you're open. Absolutely. Flick through the pages of the book I just put on your lap, look at the color pictures, and I'll ask you a question. Do you believe that book could happen by accident, that nothing produced the color pictures in the book, that red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet ink fell from the sky and formed itself into those beautiful pictures. And then black ink fell from the sky, or from nowhere, and formed itself into coherent words and sentences, capitals and periods and commas, making sense, page numbers fell from the sky, all in order, and then it bound itself and formed itself into a cover with artwork, and there we have a book. Obviously, intelligent design designed the book. Wouldn't that be correct? Yeah. Can you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. Tell me, what is DNA? What is it? Deoxyribonucleic acid. And it's what makes up our bodies and our cells and everything that makes us who we are. DNA is like our biological code, kind of like binary zeros and ones. Information about us, who we are, what makes us us, parts of us, how we look, um, how we're built, everything like that. Your genes instructed your cells how to make your eyes and what color your eyes should be and your hair and your height and your personality. Scientists call it the instruction book for life. Basically. Everything that you are or ever will be made of starts as a tiny book of instructions found at each and every cell. Every time your body wants to make something, it goes back to the instruction book, looks it up, and puts it together. The book of you would have 46 chapters, one for each chromosome. Each of our book's 46 chapters is between 48 and 250 million letters long. That's 3.2 billion letters total. This is the secret language of DNA. This is the book of life. Instruction book for life. Yes. Instruction book for life. Yes. DNA is made up of genes, and genes give instructions to the cells as to how your body should grow. Did you know that those instructions, the instruction book of your DNA, just your DNA, was laid out end for end, would go to the sun and back a number of times? That book of instructions 
is so comprehensive. DNA is the genetic information encoded in the cell of every living thing that instructs our cells how to grow and how to function. It's our genes that determine whether our skin will be dark or light, have brown or blue eyes or red or green or yellow, have red hair, be brunette or blonde, be tall or not so tall, or the color of our feathers if we're a bird. Whether we're humans, fish, animals, insects or plant life, the way our bodies look and operate has all been pre-written in the amazing book of our DNA. What do you think the mentality of someone who believes a book fell together without a bookmaker? Uh, well, it would be crazy. Do you think a book could make itself? No, I don't. Of course not. No. Utterly impossible. Yes. <laughs> if anything can happen by accident. I mean, from nothing. Um, wow. Couldn't happen, could it? I don't think so. It'd be impossible. It would be like saying is a, uh, an explosion caused uh, everything that makes a 747 airplane to all just come together by accident without some, without some intelligent thought behind it. That's, that's a good point. Do you believe DNA happened by accident? No, I think that it developed over the course of many, many millennia of evolution and development. DNA exists in every living, every living thing. Its origins don't matter. The fact that there is intelligent information tells us there must be an intelligent designer. Is this making you think? It is, and I, I do think about it from time to time. It's just, yeah, it's, it's complicated, definitely. Well, DNA is complicated, but the point I'm trying to make is very simple. Book, book designer or bookmaker, DNA, intelligent designer. God. Does that make sense? Yes. You're an atheist? I am. What would you think the mentality of someone who thought a physical book could make itself? Oh, I think they'd be silly. Of course it can't make itself. What would you think of the mentality of someone who believed the instruction book for life, DNA, made itself? Uh, well, I think it'd be silly as well. It would need investigation. That's atheism. Absolutely. And what would you think of the intelligence of someone who believed the instruction book for life made itself? Low, low intelligence level. DNA happened by accident, um... Probably not too smart. <laughs> DNA couldn't make itself, it's impossible. Does that make sense? Yes. Is this making you think? Yes. <laughs> and what would you think of the person who believed that DNA, the instruction book for life, happened by accident? We're not just talking about human beings, we're talking about every form of life. Fleas, cats, dogs, elephants, cows, horses, trees, plants, everything has DNA. The instruction book for life. Which makes the book in your hand just seem feeble compared to the infinite intelligence that must have put the instruction book for life together. Can you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you believe DNA happened by accident? Uh, I believe it could. I... Explain it to me, how a program could make itself out of nothing on how to make a human eye, giraffe's eyes, elephant's eyes, cats, dogs, puppies, flowers, birds, trees. Every living thing has DNA that's so complex, it's mind-boggling. It must have been a genius beyond any human reasoning that put it together. And to say it happened by chance is infinitely sillier than saying a physical book happened by chance. All I'm doing is reasoning with you. I'm not arguing. I don't want to win an argument. I'm just saying, I want you to concede something that's absolute common sense. Um. 
Don't clap yet. This may get worse before it gets better. Um, in some people's minds in this room, that, that video is not made um, to make anyone feel stupid. It's made to get us all to think. And because of my background, I, I, I've never really thought of these things all that much. Um, my preconceived notions were somewhat indoctrinated into me and my worldview um, was given to me by my parents. It was interesting. My, my mom and dad are here this weekend. They'll be here in the 1115 service. And last night, uh, they went to the musical and I was talking to them. They were asking me about church last night. And I was sharing with them about intelligent design. And I said, I think there's a lot of people in our church, it's just a hunch, that actually have accepted Christ as their savior, but not God as their creator. And my mom said, that's me. I accepted Christ in college, knew he died for my sins, needed his salvation to cover my sins so that I could go to heaven, but I believed in the evolutionary chart of where you just start out as a hunchback sort of monkey and you turn into a man through the evolutionary process. I didn't come to understand that until years later, and I thought to myself, that's, that's what I'm afraid of. And there's so many things that don't make sense when you have to say, God, you are my savior, you are my father, but you are also my designer and you are intimately and infinitely connected to the universe, but also my beating heart. In order to have an equilibrium, when your mind begins to doubt, doubt or find orientation, uh, when, it, when it feels disillusioned, what do you anchor yourself in? It was interesting, I, I see, saw this video a few months back and I showed it to my girls and they were just mesmerized by this. Allie's in a class right now that's teaching about uh, Darwinism and evolution. And, and so she was looking at just this simple illustration. And I thought, just a simple illustration says so much. Design, designer, you know, book, book, maker, creation, creator. And just opening up the possibility that we don't have to just accept what curriculum is taught us, but we do have another book that has curriculum that speaks about the origin of man. There's an astrophysicist, uh, his name was Robert Gastro, and he was a self-described agnostic. He stated this, he said, the seed of everything that has happened in the universe was planted in that first instant. Every star, every planet, every living creature in the universe came into being as a result of events that were set in motion in the moment of the cosmic explosion. The universe flashed into being and we cannot find out what caused that to happen. I think what we can both agree on in evolution or creationism is that there was a big bang. That there was a massive event that an explosion of life happened that birthed what we know to be as existence, time and space dimension, dimension, dimensions. And for us, we believe this cosmic cause to be God. It's interesting as we're reading this week at the end of the book of Job, we came across the passage in Job that delves into the intricacies of eternity past as God responds to Job's inquiries about suffering and injustice and pain and the meaning of life itself. And they're questions that we all wrestle with um, as we face the realities of everyday life. 
their questions that God answers here in Job. And in many ways, he cracks open even more layers of mystery, letting us know what's going on in the mind of God. After Job, in effect, yells at God to answer him about what, what's going on, the going-ons of his life, God does, and his response starts in Job 38, verse 1. And his response is not to answer his question directly, but to, in, a, in a way, sort of pan out and to zoom out and show him something that he didn't know at the time. In Job 38, 1, God answers him. He says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of a storm, he said, who is this that obscures my counsel with words without wisdom? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. He decides to answer Job's questions about suffering and justice and life seeming futility and confusion by zooming out and explaining with great detail his creation of the origin of the entire universe and specifically this little speck we live on called planet Earth in this infinitesimal galaxy among millions of galaxies now known as the Milky Way. He goes on in verse four and he says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations, Job? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out the measuring line across it? Or what were its footing set on? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? In my research this past week, I was captured by one particular discovery. It's a photo taken from a spacecraft called Voyager 1, you may be aware of that, that was from the furthest reaches of the universe, a record distance of 3.7 billion miles away. The photo is known as the pale blue dot. And in this picture that was captured, Earth is shown as a fraction of a pixel against the vastness of space suspended in a sunbeam from 3.7 billion miles away. It reminded me, actually, of Horton Hears a Who um, that I've watched with my kids where Horton, this little speck of dust, places it on the clover and he can hear life happening in this speck of dust where he says a person's a person no matter how small. When I looked at this picture, and it was partially because I had the flu early in the week, I'm sure of it, I was queasy and unsettled and uneasy to know when you zoom out that far, how small this planet is and then how small I am. And there was something about how important I feel on most days and how central I feel on most days. Looking at myself in this perspective put a lot of things in a, in a different kind of light that made me almost uncomfortable. This was taken back in 1990. Uh, actually, the Voyager 1 is continuing to sprawl out into the ever-expanding universe because the universe is continuing to expand. And February 27th, it's now 13 um, billion miles away uh, from our Earth and no longer can take pictures because we just don't show up. Carl Sagan, who wrote the book, The Pale Blue Dot, that is the planet that we live on, said this, consider that dot, that's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being, whoever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering 
uh, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forger and hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor, explorer, teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust, suspended on a sunbeam. The pale blue dot. God wants to show Job the intimate and infinite details of his creation of our world to give evidence of his sovereignty over every nook and cranny of the earth, every twist and turn of our every day, every jot and tittle of the unfolding story of the life as its author, its sustainer, sustainer, and ultimately its perfecter and finisher. He speaks of earth's foundations in this text in Job and the dimensions in this passage. It's cornerstone, it's footings that he set into place and the analogy of a measuring line that he used uh, to make it suitable, perfectly suitable to sustain life in all its forms, which was no small feat. Job didn't know this. We often are unaware of this too as we grumble and grouse about this or that and fuss and, and, and meddle and fixate and obsess over petty things, sweating the small stuff. Consider the implication of what God spoke into being and then put into motion with the measuring lines at that time. Our world as we know it has been perfectly placed by God exactly 30 or, or 93 million miles from the sun. The Earth's size and corresponding gravity holds a thin layer of mostly nitrogen and oxygen gases only extending 50 miles above the Earth's surface. If the Earth were smaller, the atmosphere would be impossible like the planet Mercury. If the Earth were larger, its atmosphere would contain free hydrogen like Jupiter. Earth is the only known planet equipped with an atmosphere of the right mixture of gases to sustain plant, animal, and human life. The Earth's location in relation to the sun can't be overstated. Consider the temperature swings we encounter, roughly minus 30 degrees to 120 degrees. If the Earth were any further away from the sun, we'd all freeze. Any closer, we'd all burn up. Even a fractional variance in the Earth's position to the sun would make life on this planet uninhabitable. The Earth remains this perfect distance from the sun while it rotates around the sun at the speed of nearly 68,000 miles an hour. Right now, we're moving at that speed around the sun, and we're spinning on our axis at 1,000 miles per hour so that we can make a revolution of 24 hours, allowing the entire surface of the Earth to be properly warmed and cooled every day, kind of like those rotisserie chickens in the oven at Meyer or a tilt-a-world that makes you want to barf at the fair times a kajillion, right? Because of this swift rotation, the shape of the earth actually isn't round. It's an oblate spheroid, spheroid, or a sphere that is slightly squashed at its poles and swollen at its equator. All that to say our beautiful planet has love handles, which I thought was cool. God goes on and says, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb at his word? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here's where your proud waves halt. If you've seen Bruce Almighty, right, with Jim Carrey, it'd be like stopping and starting and fixing and wrapping and putting bars in place and doors in place. 
God speaks of closing things off with doors, wrapping things up, fixing limits for things, setting iron bars to keep things in their place, literally commanding things where to start and where they are meant and made to stop like a maestro leading the symphony of all of creation so that everything's in tune. This took me back to the positioning of our planet and how it affects each part of our ecosystem that we take for granted. And that I imagine Job was staggered to discover in this divine conversation with God back in 2100 BC. I mean, with all that we know, how much more would this have been mind-boggling and blowing to him? In my research, I read that in order for a planet to sustain life, it needs to be orbiting just the right size star. And our star that we orbit, the sun, is a spectral type G2 dwarf main sequence star. It puts out just enough heat for the earth. If it were smaller star, it would, its pull would be so strong, it would be, um, actually if it was smaller, the earth would have to be closer to it for warmth, and then the sun's gravitational pull would be so strong that it would prevent the earth from rotating, causing it to have a constant day side with too much solar radiation and a constant night side too cold and without needed light for photosynthesis. I was also amazed to discover that God created protection for the earth, almost like a quarterback in a pocket protected by blockers. Not only is the earth protected by the ozone layer, which absorbs most of the sun's ultraviolet radiation that would scorch us, the earth is also guarded by giant planets within our solar system. These massive planets known as Jupiter or Saturn or Uranus and Neptune shield the inner planets from comets and other large meteor-like objects. The massive gravitational forces of these larger planets also help keep the Earth's orbit stable, just in case you're wondering about that. God goes on, verse 18, have you comprehended the vast expanses of the Earth? Tell me if you already know this, Job, buddy boy. What is the way to the abode of light? Do you know where darkness resides? Can you take them to their places? Do you have the paths to their dwellings? Do you know where they live? Surely you know, for you are already born. You've lived so many years, buddy. God's getting snarky with him, obviously. God asked Job's brain to stretch to comprehend even vaster expanses where light and darkness live, the paths to their dwellings and the machinations of their inner workings. Speaking of light and darkness, we've spoken of the sun and haven't really touched on the moon. Did you know that our planet actually needs to be orbited by a large moon to sustain life? Our moon is about one-fourth the size of this planet Earth. Its gravity drives our ocean tides so that the great waters of the seas don't stagnate, and yet our massive oceans are restrained from spilling over across the continents. These tides happen due to the force of gravitation between the earth and the moon. Speaking of the moon and its inseparable and crucial relationship to the earth, and this is just for kicks and giggles, did you know that the same side of the moon is always facing the earth, meaning the moon is in synchronous rotation with the earth at all times? It's mind-blowing. God goes on, verse 25, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain? and a path for the thunderstorm to, wait, to water the land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert to satisfy a desolate wasteland and to make it sprout with grass. Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? 
Maybe you're already aware of this, maybe not, but 71% of our planet is covered in water and 97% of the Earth's water is in the oceans. And what makes the Earth spectacular is that within its design is a complex system called desalinization. This is the process whereby salt is removed from the water and distributed throughout the globe through the evaporation from taking the ocean's waters, leaving the salt behind, forming clouds which are conveniently and I would say providentially moved about by the wind to disperse the water over the land for vegetation, animals, and people. It is a system of purification and supply that sustains all life on this planet, a system of recycled water, endlessly renewable. But another fascinating thing about our world is what lies beneath the water table that preserves our life. The Earth is the only known planet with tectonic plates shifting with their geomorphological movement so that the crust recycles itself as new crust forms and the old crust pushes itself downward into the Earth's mantle. It regulates the planet's temperature and recycles greenhouse gases. It functions as a sort of thermostat and catalytic converter all at the same time. It's just mind-boggling. It was interesting, I, I kept going down underneath even those plates. And at the core of the earth, did you know the core of the earth is like this caramely substance or lava that is actually hotter than the surface of the sun between 5,500 and 6,000 degrees. This is our planet. And there's enough gold down there that you could cover our whole planet with one and a half feet of gold. It makes me wonder with the new heaven, new earth, where all the gold's coming from. And maybe that's where God's got his deposit. I was thinking about just this idea of God and the universe. He goes on, did you know, do you know the laws of the heavens of verse 33? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you saying, here we are? Almost like all creations reporting for duty, being dispatched at the will of their creator commander. Here we are, where, where do you want us to go next? And obviously the snow comes to God and he's like, go to Michigan, you know, <laughs> and stop, you know, somewhere down in the south and all this stuff, it's, it's reporting to him as the commander and he's orchestrating the symphony of the universe and all of its vastest and telling things to rotate and stop and keeping the gravitational pull so that I'm not squashed to this carpet or floating in the air, but perfectly can sort of levitate in this perfect pull and push of the universe to stand before you now. I just think of a maestro at creation, enjoying the symphony. It made me think of a movie clip from Iron Man 2. Anybody like Iron Man? And this one clip with Tony Stark and Jarvis, the computer that is like wisdom, which was created by God in, in Psalm 8 we'll look at in a second where he interacts with wisdom as he's creating the universe. But this is what I picture when I think of the creation of the world. Check this out. The key to the future is where? 
Jarvis, could you kindly vacuform a digital wireframe? I need a manipulable projection. Nineteen seventy-four Stark Expo model scan complete, sir. Uh, how many buildings are there? Am I to include the Belgian waffle stands? Uh, that was rhetorical. Just show me. Huh. Mark the pavilions red. Yeah, that's good. Let's let's do some uh, color coding. Color code every causeway, footpath, tram, restroom, waffle shack, everything, and, and anything with a concrete wall. Ah. Oh. Uh huh. Um. What does that look like to you, Jarvis? Not unlike an atom. In which case, the nucleus would be here. Highlight the unisphere. Lose the footpaths. Get rid of them. What is it you're trying to achieve, sir? I'm discovering, uh, correction, I'm rediscovering a new element, I believe. Loose the landscaping, the shrubbery, the trees, parking lots, exits, entrances. Structure the protons and the neutrons using the pavilions as a framework. for almost 20 years. Still taking me to school. Hmm? <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Uh, Mark six, front and center. Sir, this implies a theoretical element not currently found on the periodic table. I think you're going to be right I will run a simulation to check element viability. Yeah, listen, you have a ball with that. I know it's going to work. I'm going to take a shower. Tap the Oracle grid. I need some stuff out of storage. Give me everything from projects Pegasus, Exodus, and Goliath. Get ready for a major remodel. Back in hardware mode. Yeah, on the seventh day, God rested, right? Yeah. I, just, I loved this picture of just flicking and speaking and moving and orchestrating. And then talking to Jarvis, there was something about that that reminded me of Proverbs 8, and I'd never seen the creation story in Proverbs 8 before where he created wisdom and then he created everything and interacted with wisdom. 
just like Jarvis. It's almost like Solomon um, took a page out of the book of Job that took a page out of the book of Moses who wrote Genesis. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is speaking and wisdom is referred to as a her and there's no need to even describe why God chose that. The Lord brought me, that is wisdom, forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ago. At the very beginning, when the world came to be, essentially wisdom was saying, I was there. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. Sound familiar? When he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries to the waters. Probably that's where the tectonic plates came in would not overstep his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. And I love this part, verse 30. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Tony Stark talking to Jarvis, God speaking with wisdom and he was there to watch it all form. And, and this is wisdom's take on watching God create. And he talks, she talks specifically about delighting in all of mankind, not just the world. I was thinking of, of the story of mankind outside of creating the world. The first thing that God actually touched was man. He spoke everything else into being, marking out its dimensions. But when it came to man, he formed him out of the dust of the ground. And just like a, a sandcastle at the beach, he formed man from the head and the nostrils and carved it out in lips and cheekbones and, and neck and Adam's apple, so to speak. And then down the neck and the clavicle bone, the shoulders and the arms and down through in the torso and the legs. And then he did something spectacular. He bent down, stooped down, cupped his lips over man's nostrils, the first kiss that we will never recover from. And he breathed his breath and his image into man, the breath of life. Can you imagine being Adam, lifeless? And then just <clears throat> coming to life and four inches in front of your face is the God of the universe looking into your eyes. <sighs> and the first words in Genesis 2 spoken in demand, you know what they are? The first three words, you are free. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. Not I am awesome or you are screwed. <laughs> Which is probably what Adam's like, where did I, what's going on? Hey, it's okay. And he smiles at him and he helps him up and then he leads him because he planted a garden for him. The first gift ever given in the Bible brings him into the garden he made and planted for him to inhabit and then he takes them over and he brings the animals in front of him, read them, to see what he would name them. That'll screw up your theology a little bit. And he brings these animals and brings them before Adam. And Adam starts like pig, hippopotamus. Yeah, that's cool. And wisdom and God and the Trinity and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, they're all up there like, that's a great name. And, and cow, is cow? Yes, aardvark, cool. Whatever that is. Nat with a silent 
letter at the front of it to screw up humanity for all of time. Let's, let's do silent letter. All of this stuff happened with God, them laughing. It's the first intimation of this relationship of laughter and fun happening in the Garden of Eden before the fall where he was a co-creator with God. Almost like God's like, I've just done a bunch of creating like you've got to create and invent and use your imagination with me and get in on the action of this. And wisdom said, man, I just delighted over the whole world and all of mankind. It was amazing watching God pull this off. The crown of his creation, the pinnacle of God's pride, us, man, Adam and Eve, which leads to the greatest evidence of intelligent design that was spoken of early in the service, in this great book of life, this instruction manual for life called DNA. See, the six feet of DNA coiled inside of every one of our body's 100 trillion cells contain a four-letter chemical alphabet that spells out precisely the precise assembly instructions for all the proteins from which our bodies are made Cambridge-educated Stephen Meyer demonstrated that no hypothesis has come close to explaining how information got into biological matter by naturalistic means. On the contrary, he said that whenever we find a sequential arrangement that's a complex and corresponds to an independent pattern or function such as books or a computer code that's typically as a programmer, this kind of information is always the product of intelligent design. Information is the hallmark of the mind, he said. And purely from the evidence of genetics and biology, we can infer the existence of a mind that's far greater than our own, a conscious, purposeful, rational, I would even say relational, an intelligent designer who is amazingly creative. And if you assign probabilities to all these components that exist in our universe, yea, even in the human body alone, the likelihood of a planetary ecosystem having all of these features of survivability is a mathematical impossibility. But as Jesus said, what is impossible for man is possible for our creator, God. That's why Job responds to God's description of his intimate and infinite direction and connection to all of creation with stone silence in chapter 40 and utter humility. In Job chapter 40, as God started to describe and zoomed out to show him this pale blue dot of the earth, Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice but I will say no more. And after he says this, God goes on in chapter 40 and 41 to explain more things like behemoth and Leviathan and the depths and the heights of creation. Like I'm not done yet. I've wanted to talk to another human being about this for a long time. And as he gets done talking about those creatures in Job 42, Job says something else. He says, I know that you can do all things. After he was just speechless before God, he spoke, his breath taken away, saying, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes 
have seen you. And I think there's something inside of us that need to know two things that God is intricate and in that intricacy and delicacy, he is intimate with each one of us here and yet infinitely beyond our capability of understanding. The fringes of his majesty we can't even touch. That somehow we're a pale blue dot and he cares about each of our unique individual heartbeats in this room. And Job just covered his mouth and said, I just, I don't know what to say. I, I'm speechless, I'm bemused, I'm completely confounded and stunned. And I love what he says in that verse, my ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. It reminds me of generational programming that happens as we're indoctrinated with a worldview and an idea of who God is and what life is and where our world came from and why we're here and what this is all about. I don't know where you came from and how you were programmed, but I, I think there is something inside of us that God doesn't want us just to hear about him, but to experience him firsthand instead of just secondhand or thirdhand knowledge. And God shows Job firsthand, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is how grand the landscape of life is. And this is who you are. And without answering Job's questions about human suffering and his doubts, not kicking them to the curb, not minimizing them, he zooms out and says, let me tell you something, all of humanity... I believe, just as Paul said in the Areopagus when he was like arguing with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers about the origins of life with all their great ideas that they were kicking around, he said, all mankind is reaching out for God and groping for God, though he's not far from us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he said, even as your poets have said, we are his offspring. We spring off of him in the same way that oftentimes we confuse that the sun actually is rising this morning and setting tonight, somehow orbiting around us because that's our sight line. He says, actually, we're orbiting around it. And in the same way, we create God in our image and we become you know, the center of the story and God's orbiting around us when he's like, no, 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 you're orbiting around me. And as you zoom out and get a picture of the pale blue dot, you realize I'm groping for you, God. I'm trying to find you. I, in you, I live and move and have my being. You give all men life and breath and everything else, he says in that same passage. And the poets have said, even secular pagan poets, we are his offspring, whoever this unknown God is that you speak of. And I think it's pretty cool that we have Genesis 1 and 2, but I think it's really cool that we got Job 38 through 42, and I think it's really cool that we've got Proverbs 8 to give a more intimate, specific picture of the beautiful creator God, the maestro God, forming the universe. And for me, when I think of a six days, seven days creation, theistic evolution, day-age theory, so much of that stuff is 
in my mind, minimal in comparison to you believe there is an intelligent designer that is the origin of all life. Would you concede that this book didn't drop out of the sky and form itself? How could we look at all of the deliberate nature and intentionality and design and order and programming of our world and think it came from nothing and nothing created something so fragile as the pale blue dot suspended in a sunbeam in the universe and us suspended on this pale blue dot right now. It is curious to me that schools will allow the hypothesis and the theory of evolution in multiple theories, but it will not allow the theory of intelligent design into the classroom. Why is that? Even just to be called a theory or a hypothesis, and why have they turned hypothesis into thesis? Just a question. I don't know why you're so scared of the theory of intelligent design, unless truth is that scary. And if we gave our kids and this generation the opportunity to really see how special they are, how intentional they are, how planned they are, that they're just not accidents through random selection that sort of have evolved over time, coming from nothing, out of nowhere, from no one. But they are something that came from somewhere, created by someone. You, me. That's what this book says. And we love God, that you love this pale blue dot so much that you gave your only begotten son, that whoever believes in you shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we believe that you're not just the intelligent designer, but the relational father that all of our hearts are looking for and groping for. We as Geppetto, look, as Pinocchios, looking for our Geppetto, our maker. And you are the one who makes us come alive. You cup your lips even now spiritually over our lifeless souls and bring us to life. And we are born and then born again. So today, God, open our minds. Blow us away. Help us to just cover our mouths. To sit, sit in stone silence even today just recognizing how vast you are, how infinite you are, and yet how intimate you are, and how much you love us so much. And in this whole universe, still to this day, we're on the only pale blue dot in the universe that can sustain life. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your greatness today. We love you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. I will see you next week. Um, it's so good to see you today. You are not dismissed because that means church is over. Church has just begun your commission to go out into the world and spread his love and life and laughter to all those you come in contact with.